Perfect Stranglers contains graphic and explicit content suitable for mature listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. This is Kylie. And I'm Brie, and we're both from Perfect Stranglers. And this is Elise from True Crime Catwear. There's a special guest. There were a special guest on her podcast. Yeah. This is super, super excited exciting. to have you guys. Yeah. Have so how many collabs do you usually do? Um, I've done quite a few. I'm kind of tapering off based on some feedback I've had from different people. Yeah. But I think I've probably done around 10 or so. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And it's from like all different kinds of podcasts, um, you know, mm-hmm. some on the the true crime comedy side, some on the more serious side, but it's yeah. been a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. I don't know what we fall under, Brie, if it's true crime comedy or serious, but I just feel like it's true crime and shit talk. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually it what it is. True crime gossip. <laughs> true crime gossip. That is exactly what we do. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Wow. I never thought about that. Well, you know what it is. That's fine. Fine with us. This is our first collab that we've done. Yeah. We've never done a collab. We've had guests, but we've never done an actual collab. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We've done like um, cross promotion on social media and having their intro with our intro and our intro with their intro, that type of thing. But yeah, this is, this is new and it's exciting and it's a good way to go out on a high note. Uh, which is sad, but you know what? If you're going to end it, do it while you're on top. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We've been podcasting for about two years and we are about to step out of the game. Thought a collab would be really fun and a good idea. So here we are. It's like podcast bucket lists and bucket list stuff. Mm-hmm. It's basically what it is. So Elise, where are you based out of? So I am based out of Washington state and I'm actually, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Cool. Okay. Ooh, Pacific, Pacific Northwest. Very Pacific Northwest girl. That is, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of serial killer lore and a lot of serial killer, uh, vibes (laughs) where you're at. (laughs) And Sasquatch also. And Sasquatch. (laughs) Yes. Let's not forget about Sasquatch. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. I think I've covered like four or five serial killers and like I haven't even touched the surface of like my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how we feel about Wisconsin because that's what, so we're both originally from Wisconsin. She's still there. I'm in Michigan, but Wisconsin is just, we've said it before. It's like a whole different country compared to the rest of the country. It's just yeah. a bizarre, bizarre place. Um, but at least do you want to tell the, tell the kids what we're doing today for our case? You kind of picked it and you picked it well. You did a good (laughs) job with the list. She gave us a list of possible cases and we were like, well, there's obviously a choice here that we, we have to go with here. Yeah. So I was putting together the case list and I'd been wanting to do do the Hillside Strangler because there is kind of a Pacific Northwest connection. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do like you were talking about before the heavy hitters um, Mm -hmm. because I definitely have no intention of ever doing Ted Bundy, but this is one that's kind of like, I didn't know a whole lot about the case. And so I thought it was interesting. And then it kind of just ties in with your guys's podcast. So we're doing the Hillside Stranglers today. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there is a small Pacific Northwest connection at the end here. So we split this up into kind of two pieces. Bree's just along for the ride. And so I'm going to do, you know, the backstory and the murders, and then we're going to flip it over to you and you're going to do the trial and all that stuff. So can I ask you something before we get started? Oh yeah. Okay. True crime cat lawyer. Are you a lawyer? Yes. Cool. Like legit. You really like a real, like pass the bar. You lawyer on your day for your day job. I do. Yep. Licensed in two States. Holy shit. (laughs) This, uh, okay, we'll sidebar just for like one moment. How did you get into it? How long have you been doing it? What kind of lawyer are you? Like, yeah, so I've kind of always wanted to go to law school. I used to watch Matlock and Perry Mason with my grandpa. <laughs> and so after I graduated from college, I wasn't really ready to take on the financial burden of law school. So I was a paralegal for a little while. And then I was just like, you know what? I want to be a lawyer. It's never going to be a good time financially to be a lawyer (laughs) and go Mm -hmm. to law school. So I went in 2015, I got in and I was doing the night program at first because I was also still working because I have to pay the bills. And then eventually I graduated in 2018. So I am coming up on my fourth year this year, which is crazy to think about. And I have done workers' compensation defense, both as a paralegal, legal assistant, and now as a lawyer for almost 10 years. So, but as a lawyer, I've been doing it for almost four. Cool. That is so cool. That's awesome. So she knows what she's talking about, guys. (laughs) Just so we're clear. (laughs) She knows her shit. (laughs) All right. So you ready to talk about some murder? I am. And I'm hoping, I'm glad that you're going first because I didn't look up how to pronounce, not Bianchi, but the other one. I didn't look up, look up how to pronounce his name, but I also didn't really care because he's a murderer. (laughs) So I was like, you know what, if I mispronounce it, it doesn't really matter. So. So I took it as, his name is Angelo Buono Jr. I took it as we don't talk about Bruno without the R. (laughs) <laughs> it's like that. how I did it in my mind because like we don't want to talk about Buono you know what I mean <laughs> so but here we are so that's that's the vibe I went with so here we go it's a hillside strangler and then it eventually turns into the hillside stranglers and then they call them the stranglers we call our listeners stranglers so for now right now you guys are murderers and I'm so sorry about that So for four months in the fall and winter of 1977, the hills of Los Angeles, California, were pretty much scattered with the bodies of females ages 12 to 18. Not even from these two, like, yes, from these two, but also from so many other serial killers that were wandering the area at this time. It was a really scary time to be in California, specifically Southern California. But for this case, it was the work of two very unstable, ruthless men, though they were recognized as a single person, even though there's two, they were recognized as a single person, the Hillside Strangler. So the Hillside Strangler, later the Stranglers, are made up of Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo, we don't talk about Buono. And it was, (laughs) uh, y'all are going to have that stuck in your head and I'm not sorry. 
So it was initially believed that only one person was responsible for the killings. The police knew, though, from the positions of the bodies that there were two criminals working together, but that information was withheld from the press at that time. So law enforcement did know. It's just that's not what was released to the public, which is really good. So we're going to talk about their childhoods, how they got to know each other, um, and we're going to start with Kenneth. So Kenneth Bianchi was born on May 22nd, 1951 in Rochester, New York. His mom was an alcoholic sex worker who gave him up for adoption about two weeks after he was born. He was then adopted in August of 1951 by Nicholas Bianchi and his wife, Frances. God, this is so fucking Italian. Schioliono? Schioliono? No, this is helping. (laughs) Uh, Bianchi and he was their only child. So Bianchi was super troubled uh, basically from the get-go. His adoptive mom described him as a, quote, compulsive liar from the time he could talk. Uh, He would often fall into like these weird, inattentive trance-like states, pretty much like a daydream. His eyes would roll to the back of his head and he would just completely like zone out like he was kind of possessed a little bit was the vibe I got. So a physician diagnosed five-year-old Bianchi with petite mal seizures, where he eventually grew out of those. He was also frequently given physical exams by doctors because of an involuntary urination problem. They called it urinary dribbling, which is unfortunate. The word dribbling to me really makes it worse. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but he would wet the bed. He would wet himself during the day. It caused him a lot of humiliation. So Francis, his adoptive mom, eventually had him wear sanitary napkins or pads during during the day and possibly at night too to help him hide this issue. In 1957, Kenneth ended up falling off of a jungle gym at Century Park School, and he had an injury to his face. We don't know if this had any um, trauma to his brain, but it was enough of an injury to like kind of mess up his face for a little bit. So we have bedwetting, we have possible head trauma, and then we have abusive alcoholic mom adopted. So we have some pretty major things here. So Bianchi had saw behavioral issues, especially anger issues. Francis responded to this by taking to the psychiatrist many, many times with Bianchi being diagnosed with a passive aggressive personality disorder by the time he was 10 years old. His IQ was measured at 116 at the age of 11. So he was pretty intelligent. Despite being um, above average intelligence, he was an underachiever. He was moved twice from different schools because he didn't get along with the teachers or the students. Francis described him as lazy, and his teachers said that he was just working so below his capacity. Like, why are you even here, basically? Which is something we see over and over and over again in these killers. So that's definitely a long story, really short on his health and his behavior issues. But he definitely went through the ringer. He was in the hospital and mental hospital over and over and over again for his, quote, urinary dribbling, for his seizures, eyes rolling back into his head, his trances, his anger issues, not getting getting along or like identifying socially with kids his age. He would have scans performed. He was being poked and prodded for his issues. He was giving, I spelled this out and I still can't pronounce it, cystoscopies and retrograde pileograms, pileograms, um, which were done on him. Basically x-rays of your urinary tract and then they stick a tube like a catheter up and like look around in you to see exactly what's going on. So the 
pileogram lets your doctor view your kidneys, bladder, and the tubes that carry urine from your kidneys to your bladder. And while these medical issues like were continuing to happen, he was also having some pretty bad behavioral issues and they were escalating. At 12 years old, he decided that he likes pulling younger girls' pants down and does just that to a six-year-old girl. Oh. And that was just, that was the one that was like, like hard evidence documented. It's believed he did that many times, but the girls didn't say anything. So after Bianchi's adoptive dad died suddenly of pneumonia in 1964, a teenaged Bianchi refused to cry or show any signs of grief during this whole ordeal of his adoptive dad suddenly dying. After her husband's death, Frances had to work while her son attended high school, and she was known for keeping him home from school for really long periods of time. So shortly after Bianchi graduated from Gates Chili High School in 1970, he married his high school sweetheart, but that ended after eight months. Supposedly, she left him without any explanation. However, she allegedly was unable to meet his standards for a woman. He didn't like his women having any tight clothing, any V-necks. They had to wear turtlenecks, basically not like show that they had a body, which is fucked Hmm. up. Yeah. He was also with several women at the time throughout the marriage. So, oh, I don't know why she left. Well, gee, I fucking wonder. Like, let's think about this for a second. Yeah. Mr. Kenneth. Yeah. So as an adult, Bianchi dropped out of college after one semester and he drifted through a series of just like weird menial, like grocery store jobs, just un- not unimportant, but just like, no, he wasn't saving the world, just like regular jobs. He finally ended up as a security guard at a jewelry store. So this gave him the opportunity to really learn how to steal valuables. He often gave these valuables from his store to girlfriends or um, sex workers to buy their loyalty and to buy their services. But because of many of these petty thefts, Bianchi was constantly on the move throughout his adulthood just so he wouldn't get caught. So that was Kenneth. Now let's talk about Angelo Buono. So Angelo Anthony Buono Jr., who called himself a, quote, Italian stallion, which is freaking dis... I'm sorry. Even if you're doing it ironically, why? Why are we doing that? That's gross. I was once on a dating app and it was Bumble and the guy said, I hope you like stallions in his dating bio. Ew. No, thanks. I matched with him just so I could call him out on his bullshit. <laughs> I wasted a like so I could be mean. I'm not going to lie. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> we don't fucking say this. It was so bad. Angelo Italian Stallion Buono Jr. was born on August 5th, 1934 in Rochester, New York. He was born to first-generation Italian immigrants. Uh, Buono had developed a pretty extensive criminal history from failure to pay for child support, which we'll get into, a grand theft auto, assault, and rape. So when he was young, his parents divorced. Uh, He was five years old, which left his mom with children to provide for, but nobody to really help. So in 1939, so he is 17 years old older than Kenneth Bianchi. So there's a pretty big age gap here. Yep. In 1931, when Buono was five, he moved to Glendale, California with his mom, Jenny, and his sister, Cecilia. So he displayed a really, really abnormally high interest in sex at a very young age. When he was a teenager, he claimed to his classmates that he had raped several girls and he was proud of it. Uh, Buono idolized serial rapist Carol Chessman, aka the Red Light Bandit considering him his quote-unquote hero, but Buono really believed that he shouldn't have just raped these women. He really should have also killed his victims, 
which is like, I don't think that you should have tips and tricks for a rapist, but whatever. (laughs) Buono began stealing cars as a teen, as well as like other petty theft. And this placed him into reform school. He got involved with gangs. And from time to time, he was arrested for different crimes related to grand theft auto and gang activity. By the age of 17, which is in 1951, his family threw him out for his constant verbal abuse on them. Bono was then sent to school by the California Youth Authority in 51. He later escaped that school and then they found him. And then they're like, no, you're going to correctional school. So that's where he ended up. In 1955, he married his high school sweetheart. Uh, She was 17 years old. Her name was Geraldine Vinyl, who he, he got pregnant and then skipped town a week later. Bono and Vinyl's child was named Michael, and he was born on January 10th of 1956, but Bono divorced her and refused to pay any child support. Later on, he married Mary Castillo, who he had five kids with, also denied her child support, so we're at six kids now. Holy crap. Yeah. We're going to be still counting, though. There's more to come. Oh, my God. I know. (laughs) See, here's the thing. Women can only have one kid in the span of nine months. Mm-hmm. Call it 10. It's closer to 10. Men can have so many kids. Why? This, this is giving me Nick Cannon vibes before Nick Cannon was a thing. <laughs> yes. For yes. sure. Like, like, why are you, why are you having so many kids? Why are we you doing this? You don't want to take care of and you apparently don't want to pay for it. Like, what's the point? Right. And, and like, you are not, you do not have genes that need to be passed on. Like you are someone who should not probe. You are the epitome of we need tests done before someone can have a fucking kid. Like this is fucked up. Like, sir, you should let's chop that thing off. Bueno, 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 and Castillo's (laughs) not good. We didn't mean to say good. So bueno and Castillo's (laughs) no bueno. No bueno and Castillo's marriage ended in divorce in 1964. She claimed that he had been physically and sexually abusive to her and the kids, specifically her two-year-old daughter. There was allegedly an incident that was never like hard confirmed, but um, what do you how what are you gonna do? Interrogate a two-year-old? You know what I mean? Right. So Castillo tried to reconcile with him, but after he handcuffed and threatened her at gunpoint, she was like, nah, bitch, I'm gone, and abandoned that idea and left. Good for her. Uh, he ended up getting, I know that doesn't happen very often, especially back then. Usually the women stick around. So props to her for actually like recognizing that and thinking of herself and her kids and leaving. So he ended up got, getting married a third time the following year to a single mom named Nanette Campino. Campino. They had two kids with her. So we're at eight kids now. Like why? God, I hate men. Anyway, so around that time, Bono was arrested for stealing cars and sentenced to one year in prison. But due to his extremely large family that he now has all over the place, the sentence was suspended so that he could work and quote-unquote provide, though we know he was not providing anything to his former wives or children. Campino later uh, divorced him in 1971, just like his previous two wives, not only because he was abusing her, but he also raped her young daughter. That's disgusting. He is, when we're looking at Buono versus Bianchi, we can definitely see who the worst person was and who was probably the influence on the younger one. Definitely, definitely an influence, which is, and it's an awful influence. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you were kind of going through Bianchi and his backstory, there's a, a lot of mental health issues there. Mm-hmm. And I think with Buono, 
there's more of like this just sexual deviancy and just like altogether shittiness, like not to excuse anything that either of them do, but there's definitely like a lot more just shitty person vibes from Buono. Yeah. I definitely think Buono was in nature. Bianchi was nurture. Mm-hmm. And that is a dangerous combination when you have Bianchi, who has clearly had a really rough childhood health-wise and family-wise and that type of thing. You can He was probably very impressionable and very easy to persuade. So we're not done yet, though, with uh, Mr. Buono. The following year, Buono married once again to a woman named Deborah Taylor, but he didn't live with her. He got a job as a car upholsterer in 1975 and was, despite his physical appearance and abusive behavior, considered very attractive to women, which I just cannot. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm Googling him right now and he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. He's very much not. During this time, Bono frequently forced women to perform oral sex on him, also started dating a teenage girl who he got pregnant twice. So I don't know if he got her pregnant twice and she didn't have the kids or if he got her twice and she he has two more kids floating around. I'm not sure. But I hope to God none of these kids know that that is his dad. But yeah. I'm not, you know, I just hope that they never have to find that out. So later in 75, Buono opened a car upholstery shop and started operating a small business for a living. However, there was more than meets the eye with this shop. So this is how we get to these two guys meeting. So in 1975, when Buono was 41 years old, he came into contact with his adopted cousin, Kenneth Bianchi. Through his mom and his uh, aunt, he reportedly contacted his cousin, Angelo Buono, in California. So he's like, hey, Angelo, you're my older cousin. I look up to you. Let me just, like, move out. I'm having a hard time here. Let me come out to California and, like, hopefully make my life easier and, like, learn from you a little bit. You're older. You know what you're doing. So even though Buono was 17 years older than Bianchi and had only met him once when he was a little boy, he agreed to let his cousin stay in his house in Glendale until he got on his feet. So in 1976, Bianchi, then 25 years old, moved out west. At this time, Buono's upholstery shop was up and running, seemingly successful. Well, Bianchi was reportedly very impressed by Buono's quote-unquote way with women. I'm going to struggle saying Bianchi and Buono this entire time. Just so we're clear, (laughs) it's going to be a really hard time for me (laughs) because I can't. So the two allegedly agreed to try their hand at becoming pimps to make some extra money. So according to author Darcy O'Brien in his 1985 true crime book, it's called Two of a Kind, The Hillside Stranglers, these cousins took two girls under their wing and allegedly forced them into sex work in Buono's house under the threat of violence. So I've heard references to Buono's house and then his upholstery shop. I am not sure if they were separate things or if he lived in his upholstery shop, like there was an apartment above or something. Uh, The scheme reportedly worked really well until the girls managed to escape. So the cousins really wanted to remain in the sex work game because they're making money and it's sex and it's, they have control and all of the things. So they came into contact with a sex worker named Yolanda Washington, who had a friend and colleague who had reportedly sold Buono and Bianchi a quote unquote trick list of men who frequented sex workers. So the two guys set up another girl, another young girl in Buono's house as a working girl and reportedly became enraged when they learned that the list that was provided to them 
was an out-call list instead of an in-call list, meaning that the men on the list wanted sex workers to come to them. They allegedly decided to teach her a lesson. So one night in October uh, 1977, Yolanda Washington became the first victim, according to O'Brien. Her naked body was found on October 17, 1977, on a hillside near the Ventura Freeway, and Detective Frank Salerno, which we all know, Frank Salerno is like, if we're going to talk about heavy hitters, he is a heavy hitter FBI detective. He has broken a few major cases. This one, Richard Ramirez. So he's a big deal. The LA County Sheriff's Department, he was called to the scene. It was determined that the corpse was cleaned before being dumped. There were pretty faint marks that were visible around her neck, wrists, and ankles where a rope had been used. The victim had also been raped. After that, the cousins oftentimes posed as police officers and flashed fake badges. They would pull over unsuspecting female drivers at night, abduct them, assault, rape, torture, murder them in their shop in Glendale, California. Later, dispose of the bodies on hillsides throughout Los Angeles. And that was all reported by the New York Times. So we're going to go through the list of victims here. The second was Judith Miller. So on November 1st, 1977, police were called to Alta Terrace Drive in, and sorry, this is California and I can't pronounce anything, in La Crescenta, a neighborhood 12 miles north of downtown LA, where the body of a teenage girl was found naked, face up on a parkway in a middle-class residential area, kind of like the same vibe of Richard Ramirez too, where he wasn't going to like the slums, he was going to middle-class places where you wouldn't really expect murder. The homeowner had covered her with a tarp in the early morning hours to prevent the neighborhood kids from viewing her on the way home, which is uh, really sad. Yeah. Isn't that just like, that's your first thought is protect the kids from seeing this kid dead. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. There were ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles, indicating to police that she was bound and strangled. The body was dumped, and it showed that she was likely killed somewhere else and then dumped there. Frank Salerno also found a small piece of really light-colored lint or like fuzz on her eyelid, saved it for the forensic expert. Coroner's report further detailed that she had been raped and sodomized. The girl was described as being small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds and appearing to be about 16 years old at first sight. Um, was eventually identified as 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller, former student of Hollywood High School, a runaway and occasional sex worker. Miller was last seen alive on Halloween of 1977, talking to a man driving in a large two-tone sedan on Sunset Boulevard next to Carney's, which is, I have no idea what that is. It's on Sunset Boulevard, so I'm gonna I'm just going to say that it's a restaurant. The Stranglers told her that they were undercover police officers, handcuffed her, took her to Buono's auto upholstery shop, which you can, if you Google 703 East Colorado Street in Glendale, you can see what it is now. And it is a car deal, like a car, um, car shop. It's uh, still there. And that's where she was murdered. So five days later, on November 6th of 77, the nude body of another woman was discovered near Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale, California. I Okay, so there's a country club next to me, like, I don't know, 10 minutes down the road, and they had a sign up that said, we have caddy issues on their oh, sign. What? <laughs> okay. I know. So, I was like, that's kind of, that's kind of suggestive, but hilarious. Yeah. Is that, did they, are they hiring caddies? Is that what they're saying? Like where? I don't know. Or they're so, just trying yeah, to be I funny. Live in, I live in a town of 10,000 people. And like, if you go maybe 
like five minutes down the road, it goes down to a town of 500 real quick. It's all country. We're all, it's all redneck area. Right. I'm like, listen, people are going to get that, be offended. Or there is some cousin fucking going on. I don't know what's going on here, (laughs) but (laughs) I was kind of shocked to see it in a small town. Like the one before her Miller, she had five, uh, she had five points of neck, wrist and ankles, um, ligature marks, uh, having been strangled and brutally raped, but she wasn't sodomized. Uh, she was identified as 21 year old waitress, Alyssa, Teresa, or Alyssa Castman or Caston. Sorry. She was last seen leaving the restaurant where she worked the night before her body was discovered. So Caston was also a professional dancer for the all-female dance troupe, the LA Knockers. And unlike the two previous victims, she was not a sex worker or a drug user or a runaway. She had her shit together. The Stranglers followed Caston after she was seen driving home from work, pulled her over on the street she lived on, gave her fake police badges, said they were detectives. They then handcuffed her and told her that they need to take her in for questioning. And then they took her back to the upholstery shop and did what they did. Next, we have Catherine Lori Baker. Um, in early November of 77, two men approached 24-year-old Catherine Lori Baker, and she was the daughter of Peter Lori, L-O-R-R-E, Lor, Lori, Lori. So he was like a pretty prominent actor with the attempt of abducting her and killing her. However, when they found a picture of her sitting on her dad's lap, among um, other like identifying things, they let her go without any incidents because they were scared that a murder of a celebrity's kid may attract highly highly unwanted police attention. So Lori didn't really realize who the men were until they were arrested, which she ended up calling the police and saying, Hey, I saw these two. They flashed me a badge and trying to abduct me. And then they found out who I was and let me go, which I mean, glad that you have the dad that you did woman, because that saved your life. So next is Dolores Sepita and Sanja Johnson. Uh, November 13th of 77, 12-year-old Dolores Ann or Dolly Sepita and 14-year-old Sanja Marie Johnson boarded a bus in front of the Eagle Rock Plaza on Colorado Boulevard and they were heading home. The last time they were seen was getting off the bus on York Boulevard in North Avenue, um, uh, North Avenue 46th. And they were approaching a vehicle, same sedan, same like weird tan colored sedan that the others had seen with two men inside. Their two corpses were found by a nine-year-old boy who had been treasure hunting in a trash heap. Oh God. On the hills on the hillside of Dodger Stadium in November 20th of 77. Both of the girls' bodies had already begun to decompose, and it had been determined that they were strangled and raped. Treasure hunting in a trash heap. Like, that is the most L.A. thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? On November 20th, so they those two were abducted on the 13th. They were found on the 20th. Earlier on the same day, the 20th, hikers found the naked body of 20-year-old Christina Reckler, an honor student at the Art Center College of Design. Detective Bob Grogan of the L.A. Police Department said that she was a loving and pretty serious young woman who really had a bright future ahead of her, which is what we hear out of all of these things. And for, if you are a bright woman with a future ahead of her and lights up the room when you walk in, you're fucked. <laughs> right. Essentially. Yeah. Don't be that positive light in the world. Just resting bitch face forever. She was found on a hillside between Glendale and Eagle Rock. Uh, She was found by Grogan, ligature marks around her wrist, ankles, neck, same thing as the other ones. Turned her over. This one is different. There were bruises on her breasts that were obvious and blood oozed from her rectum. 
Unlike the first three victims, there were two puncture marks on her arm, but there were no sign of needle tracks that indicated any type of like drug addiction. It was later revealed that Reckler had been injected with Windex by the men. Oh, yeah. what the hell? I know. I've, yeah. Evelyn Jane King uh, is our next one. On November 23rd, 1977, she was 28. Her body was extremely decomposed at this point. She was an aspiring actress who went missing on November 9th. So we're getting the bodies are being captured earlier and found later through as we continue to go throughout this. So the severity of the, she was found on the Golden State Freeway. Uh, the severity of decomp prevented determination as to whether she was raped or tortured, anything like that. They could tell she had been strangled like the others. In response, authorities finally created a task force, initially composed of 30 officers from LAPD and the Sheriff's Department and the Glendale Police Department. And now the catchphrase of Hillside Strangler had been officially dubbed in the media because the media still thought there were just one. November 29th of 77, police found the body of 18-year-old Lauren Ray Ranger. She was a business student who lived with her parents in the San Fernando Valley in the hills around LA's Mount Washington, along with the same ligature marks, which we now know that they do, their signature. There were also burn marks on her hands indicating that she was tortured. So now they're escalating their situation to torture. Lauren's parents expected her to come home before midnight. But get this, the next morning when they found her car parked across the street with the door open, it was just like slightly open. The father was like, what the fuck is going on? I'm going to go question the neighbors and see if anyone saw something because this is weird. So he found that the woman who lived in the house where Lauren's car had been parked saw, this woman witnessed the abduction. Like she saw it all happen. So this woman stated that she saw two men. One was tall and young. The other one was older and shorter with bushy hair. She also stated that she heard the girl cry, you won't get away with this during the abduction. I have a lot of questions. Why wouldn't you intervene? Why wouldn't you call the cops? I'm assuming in 1970s, this woman was not living home alone. I'm assuming she probably had a man in the house, which is like kind of gross to say, but I'm assuming at this time in history, she probably had a man in the house, especially with all of the stuff going on at this time. Why wouldn't you do anything? Yeah. We see this all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. Like with the, uh, we did the Lulu, Lulu lemon murders where they heard crying and like whatever yelling and nobody did anything. And it was so full of people. Yeah. It's crazy to like have somebody go to your door and then be like, oh yeah, I saw all these things happen. Right. And you're just right? like, what? Yeah. <laughs> when in doubt, say something. Yes. Yeah. I don't care if you like are like, God, that baby's crying an awful lot. Yeah. Like, that's a little like that's a lot of crying. Babies cry, yes. But also bad things happen when babies cry. So if you like hear something, say something. Yes. You know? The bystander effect Make the police- is real. It's really real. Make the police do their fucking job. Make them do something useful. The next one is Kimberly Martin. On December 17th, body of 17-year-old sex worker Kimberly Diane Martin, uh, naked, showing signs of torture. She's found on a deserted lot in Los Angeles City Hall, which is ballsy. Yeah. Wow. That's fucking ballsy, right? Because there is City Hall, so you know there's a police department right there. So Martin had previously joined a call girl agency because she was pretty scared of exposing herself on the streets with this strangler on the loose and night stalker on the loose, all of those things. 
the killers happened to place a call to her agency from a Hollywood public library payphone, and she was the call girl who just so happened to be dispatched. So when the police investigated the apartment she had been dispatched, they found it vacant and broken into. The Cindy Hudspeth is the final one. So she is the body of Final Hillside Strangler victim. She was discovered in LA on February 17th of 78. A helicopter pilot spotted an orange Datsun, which is like an old Nissan brand vehicle. They don't make them anymore. Abandoned midway down a cliff on the Los Angeles Crest Highway. So police responded to the scene and found 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, a student part-time waitress, in the trunk of this car. Her corpse, again, had the ligature marks, rape, torture. She had been placed in the trunk of the car, which was then pushed off the cliff. So Hudspeth's murder had been initially unplanned, but Bianchi had arrived at Buono's upholstery shop at closing time on February 16th, and she found Hudspeth was, like, chilling with Buono, discussing the work that she needed done on this car, because, you know, she thought she was getting work done, not getting murdered in, in, like, this back alley brothel. So she was talking about the work she needed done, and then the two men had a private discussion about what to do with this woman, and they were like, eh, let's kill her, and made her the next victim. So by the beginning of 78, the pair had killed a total of 10 women together. At that point, they stopped killing. And there's a few reasons why people think that they stopped killing. The main one is Bianchi actually had a son. He was with a woman at this time during all of this. Gross. Yep. Hard pass on that. Hard pass on that. But Bianchi's son was born at this time. Also, Bianchi, Bianchi, who had, he wanted to be in law enforcement, which is a lot like Ed Kepper, the co-ed killer who wanted to be in law enforcement. He was applying for law enforcement jobs while he was killing, and he had made some acquaintances with the LAPD and been brought along when officers drove around the city scouting the killers. Like, So he basically went on ride-alongs looking for killers. So he's looking for himself during these ride-alongs, which blows my fucking mind. You know, he probably got off on the adrenaline of it and the secrecy of it. Yeah. Like, that's wild to me. One night when the duo tried to abduct an 11th victim, Bianchi and Buono, the two got into a really heated argument during which Bianchi revealed that he had been questioned in the Hillside Strangler case. So, so I don't know if he said some things while he was with the LA Police Department or he was starting to match descriptions, possibly of maybe some people who they've seen around, but Buono was pissed off at this, threatened to kill him if he didn't get out of town. So for whatever reason Bianchi had, probably a mix of all of these things, him and his family moved to Bellingham, Washington in May of 1978. He got a job as a security guard there. In January of the following year, January of 79, Bianchi abducted two female Western Washington University students, Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder, took them to a house he guarded and proceeded to rape, torture, and kill them. So fortunately for everyone else, he left behind some clues this time. He left his car, which had California license plates still. This is why you got to change that shit over. Do what you're supposed to do. Be a good citizen. You know, get your shit done. You change your plates over. If you would have done, if he would have done what he's supposed to do, he probably would have gotten caught, but instead Mm -hmm. he was a man and delayed, delayed what he was supposed to do. So he had California plates. He was spotted and he was connected to the address of two Hillside Strangler victims. 
And the murders were the exact same as the previous 10 women, the girls who had been killed in LA, like the same ligature marks, torture, all of that stuff, all the same. So it was at this point, they linked Bianchi as one of at least one part of the pair of the Hillside Stranglers. Police in LA kind of heard about this and were like, this sounds really familiar. Let me know if they have this stuff going on. And they're like, oh, this makes sense. And Bianchi moved from California to Washington. We already have our eyes on him. It all kind of came together. So the next day, January 12th, 79, he was arrested without incident. When Bianchi's photo was broadcasted to the media um, in LA, the investigators received a call from a lawyer named David Wood, who helped one of the two girls Buono and Bianchi had pimped escape. So he tipped them about Buono, who was also arrested um, on October 22nd of 79. So he took a while to get arrested, like a long time. Before that, Bianchi let investigators know that of his cousin's involvement in the murders. So during these two years before the trial, which we'll talk about, Bianchi formed a relationship with Veronica Lynn Compton, an actress and playwright with like an obsession with serial killers from behind bars. So she sent him a copy of a screenplay titled The Mutilated Cutter, which sounds like kind of a good band name. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. About a female serial killer she had written asking for his thoughts on the subject. So she was really, really like fixated, like obsessed with Bianchi. And it was all fine and dandy until he managed to manipulate her into copcatting a hillside strangler murder in order to make it look like the killer was still at large, even though they were behind the doors. So she even smuggled some of his semen out of prison in a rubber glove. So DNA wasn't a thing yet. There was no forensic evidence, but you could like blood type with with semen at this time. So this woman lured another woman into a motel, tried to strangle and rape her and all these things, but she was overpowered and she was eventually arrested. That's insane. That's, that's crazy. How do you get manipulated into doing some shit like that? You know what I mean? Like, listen, I'm going to need you to, here's my cum, go murder someone. Like, I'm, I, I have no, I don't, she must have not been stable to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So that's where I leave off. <laughs> I'm going to hand it over to you to, to wrap this clusterfuck up. Ooh, um, thank you for that image. Azure. <laughs> You're welcome. Could You're you imagine just like a bat, like a, like a glove full of cum? <laughs> like, I, I don't want that for any purpose, but I certainly don't I want can. that for the purpose of like going and committing a murder and then why? I Why? cannot, like, would you put it in your purse? Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, that's something I was thinking about because, you know, I think about the times that I've, like, visited prisons and I'm like, where, where do you put that? And, like, especially for it not to, like, leak out, like. Oh, you would have right? had, <laughs> had to literally, you would have had to do his thing, tie the top of it like you tie a condom. And then hope there's no air in it because if there's air in it, what if it pops or it's going to take up space? You know what I mean? Yes. <gasps> Nasty. <laughs> you talked about Bianchi being arrested. So he was formally charged with the two Washington murders on January 26th of 1979. The judge issued a gag order prohibiting anyone involved with the investigation, including any witnesses from releasing any information about Bianchi or his connection to the murders. And I think 
part of that is just the things that he said about Buno being involved. I think they wanted to kind of keep that under wraps as much as they could, because like you said, he wasn't arrested right away. So not wanting to tip him off, I'm sure, was kind of at the top of their list. A few days after he was charged, he was arraigned and he pleaded not guilty to both murders. And he was ordered to be held without bail and he would be handcuffed during all future court appearances, which I thought was kind of interesting, but also makes sense. Yeah. So about two months later, he decides to change his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. And his attorney told the court that Bianchi had amnesia about the Washington victims, Karen and Diane. And he supposedly had three different psychiatrists examine Bianchi. And according to his attorney, all three of these psychiatrists concluded that Bianchi suffered from severe multiple personality disorder. So according to Bianchi, when he's you know being examined by these psychiatrists, there's three personalities other than Kenneth Bianchi. There's the courteous nice guy, which is kind of his so I guess actually there's so there's three personalities overall. The one that we all see, Ken Bianchi, he's the courteous, nice guy. Then there's Billy, who was essentially the childlike version of Bianchi, which if any of this were true, I think would make a lot of sense given his trauma and his upbringing. The person that committed the murders was Steve. He is the quote, rude, crude, and calculating murderer. And he's the one that Bianchi sort of blames for the murders of Karen and Diane. Bianchi's attorney files a motion to kind of have more of an impartial group of psychiatrists evaluate Bianchi. So the judge grants that motion. So it becomes a six panel of psychiatrists to examine him. So the defense gets to choose two, the prosecution chooses two, and the judge chooses the final two. But in a surprise, to no one, Bianchi didn't have multiple personalities and Steve wasn't responsible for the murders. Kenneth Bianchi was. So Does reason of insanity work like often? No, it's actually really hard to prove. And there is a difference too between being guilty by reason of insanity, like an insanity defense is different than competency to stand trial. So when you're looking at insanity, you're looking at the time of the crime, was this person insane versus competency you're looking at right now, can this person aid in their trial going forward? And there was a serial killer that I talked about that kind of knew all the right things to say to make it seem like he fit, you know, the criteria for this diagnosis. And I think that that's kind of what Bianchi did to some extent. I don't know. I think a lot of times people that actually have personality disorders don't necessarily realize that they have multiple personalities. It's something that takes a lot of like counseling and talking it out and things like that. I don't think that you identifying like these three personas is necessarily consistent with you having the actual condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in April of 1979, the LAPD announced that they had enough hard evidence to charge Bianchi with all 10 of the Hillside Strangler murders. He's failed at his 
attempt at an insanity defense. And now he's learned that the LAPD is basically going to charge him with all 10 of the murders. So he decides to plead guilty to the murders of Diane and Karen in Washington. I didn't find what five exactly, but he pleads guilty to five of the Hillside Strangler murders as well. The biggest thing that comes out of his plea deal is that he agrees to testify against Bruno in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table. After his plea agreement was set, he's then interviewed by the Hillside Strangler Task Force. And based on the information he provided to investigators, Bruno was arrested in October of 1979. So basically, the big gap between when Bianchi's arrested and Bruno's arrested is Bianchi's trying to do this insanity defense. And then he gets the plea and then he provides the information. So it's still kind of being investigated in that time. And sort of in California at the time, a person couldn't be convicted just based on the testimony of a conspirator. So I think a lot of that time was spent gathering other evidence that could be used to sort of corroborate Bianchi's story mm-hmm. so that they okay. they weren't just relying on somebody who had already lied to the court. Of course, investigators are getting ready to put their case together in the Hillside Strangler murders. Like you talked about, Bianchi kept himself busy writing to Veronica Compton. That's sort of like the second attempt at a defense. So he has this failed insanity defense. And then he has Veronica Compton where he's trying to, you know, oh, somebody else did it. Look, they're still committing these crimes, even though we're both in jail. Obviously, that doesn't work. Um, oh my god the, you know the cum glove who doesn't like a good cum glove just it's <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> that's not the last thing that Bianchi does to try to kind of mess up the case against Bruno in July 1981 he testified that he did fake having multiple personalities but he also claimed that he didn't know when he was telling the truth and when he wasn't And he couldn't be sure that Bruno was involved in the Hillside Strangler murders. So I don't know if this is just, I'm trying to like save face or like, I'm trying to make it look like I didn't rat on my cousin or what it is. Yeah. But all of this bizarre behavior and these conflicting testimonies makes the prosecution feel uneasy about his testimony. And so they filed a motion to dismiss the case against Bruno. So that obviously would be sort of catastrophic. Um, I mean, they still have Bianchi that they would probably go after, Mm -hmm. but because there were two of them, I think it sort of, I think it put a lot of people, like it left a bad taste in their mouth. So in July of 1981, Judge Ronald George dismissed the prosecution's motion And in his opinion, he said there was more than sufficient evidence to establish that Buna was guilty. I don't know if this was the judge's direction or if this was kind of from the higher up actual district attorney of the county, but the county district attorney's office withdrew from the case and then the state attorney general took over. Again, I don't know if this was by choice or if they were forced, but it's not really a good look either way. They never say it, but it's essentially like, ooh, you fucked up, and now we have to deal with this. This is just a little sidebar, but the judge also decided to separate 
the murders from the other rape and pimping charges that were Mm -hmm. filed against them so that in case something went wrong with the murder cases or vice versa, like they would still have other crimes to charge him with. So the trial started, and I use started in air quotes, in November of 1981. And it would be the longest murder trial in U.S. history at the time, clocking in at two years and two days. Wow. Holy shit. Okay, so 81. So that must have ended in 83, right? Yeah. Okay, so because the Night Stalker began in like summer of 84. So think about that. You think you're finally done. The city's like resting easy. All of a sudden it like kicks up again. Yeah, and well, and what's crazy is I didn't put it in here, but let me just pull this up. So at the time that their trial was going on, there were two other big serial killer mm-hmm. cases going on in the exact same courtroom or courthouse. Yeah. So the Sunset Killer was happening in this courtroom across the hall from the Hillside Stranglers. And then William Bonin, the Freeway Strangler, was also in the same courthouse like those two trials were going on and so the context I read it in was just that it was like a ridiculous time for media coverage because it was like which one do you go to yeah Um, right and then cut to like cut to like a couple years later and then you have OJ and then you have Menendez brothers like LA County Police Department is their shit but they have a lot to deal with yeah no for sure So I couldn't quite confirm this, but I think that the Hillside Strangler case is still the longest trial in L.A. County history and possibly California history. I don't think it's the longest murder trial in the U.S. anymore. But again, I couldn't confirm that. They started picking a jury in November of 1981, and that took about three months which is a long time. There would be close to 400 witnesses called to testify and over 1,800 exhibits would be entered into evidence. Oh my God. Yeah, super crazy. So they had Catherine- Lori, I think. Lori, I think that's her name, yeah. So she was one of the victims that testified. I think her testimony was important for a couple of reasons. One, she could describe the men, but two, she could describe the kind of ruse of them impersonating police officers, which I think was really important, especially because like you talked about earlier, a lot of these victims weren't high risk. Like we see in a lot of serial killer cases these were, you know, sort of just average citizens minding their business, you know, leaving from work or, you know, just doing everyday things. They weren't the high-risk victims that we see so often. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were impersonating police officers, which majority of the time, if a police officer pulls you over or says, hey, I need to talk to you about this, like most citizens are going to say, like they're not going to put up a fight because like yeah you're the police you know mm-hmm. i i have to do what you're saying i think that's super unsettling and it again goes to kind of their mo so they also talked about carpet and upholstery fibers that were found on two of the victims and they matched fibers that were taken from Buno's house and auto upholstery shop as well 
one of the things that happened, which I think we kind of see in some later trials in LA County as well, is that the prosecution took the jury on several kind of field trips to various crimes during this sort of like two week period. And so they would go out and the detectives would kind of present their testimony in that way about what they found, where they found the victims, all of those kind of evidence and just giving the the jury a real picture, just painting that picture for them. The media was allowed to attend these field trips, but they had to keep a respectful court-ordered distance from the jury and the prosecution and kind of everybody that was involved in the trial. They had to, you know, just sort of hang back. Funo himself declined to go on these field trips, which I think isn't surprising because he just adamantly denied that he was involved in these murders. I I also think part of it too could be his attorneys not knowing whether or not they could control him in that setting, like whether he would be sort of belligerent and make himself come off worse than he already is. I think that there's a lot of just maintaining client control that comes into play. Um, And he definitely seems like one of those that is a wild card. You don't really know what he's going to do, but if he's he does Italian stallion. Yeah. <laughs> and so if he <laughs> think back, like it's just going to reflect poorly on him even further. I think that was probably the right call. But of course, the most anticipated witness testimony and probably the most important was Kenneth Bianchi. Mm-hmm. So he took the stand in June of 1982. So this is like close to nine months into the trial now. And you thought your mind was blown before. I'm about to blow your mind again. He spent six months on the witness stand. What? What? Oh my God. Six months. That's crazy. Yeah. So they just focused on him for six months. Yep. Holy shit. Yeah. I... I have in my notes, like, that's more than most, like, present-day trials. Yeah. The whole trial lasts. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why? Were they just, like, fucking around? Or did it was this all, like, serious, like, legit stuff? So he spent a total of six months, and four of those months were him being cross-examined by Bruno's attorney. So I think it was just oh my God. picking at every little thing. Because, of course, he had you know, plenty to work with his criminal history, his other murders in Washington. Like, look, isn't it true that you did these murders all by yourself and now you're just trying to, you know, pin it on your cousin. It just, I think because of the just sheer nature of the case, all the witnesses, all the exhibits, I don't think it's something we'll ever see again, but it's just, when I read that, it just blew my mind. Yeah. That is, that is in holy shit. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I've been following this. I don't know if you guys have seen this, this most recent trial in Oregon of this lady who wrote like an article or a book about how to murder your husband and then her husband died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Following that. And I think it was like maybe two months for the whole trial. Yeah. Yeah. She maybe spent two or three days on the witness stand, Mm -hmm. but she certainly did not spend months. How exhausting though for him, honestly, like that had to have been a huge, for someone who already has some issues that had to have been a huge mental toll on him. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I could not imagine. Also, I feel really bad for the jury. Like, <laughs> having to just sit that. there through all that? Oh, my God. Yeah. Especially when, yeah. you know, at the beginning... I'm sure you guys have done jury duty. And if you get called, they'll tell you like, oh, we expect Oh, we, we have never done jury duty. Oh, okay. So I haven't actually <laughs> done it. Like, <laughs> so I got like up to the jury box, but then they found out like what I do and like where my stance is. And they were like, eh, nope, goodbye. <laughs> so, but usually when you get like actually set on a jury, they'll tell you, we anticipate it's going to be this long. Like, can you commit? Blah, blah, blah. They expected it was going to be a year long trial, but it was like double that. And mm-hmm. I just, I can't imagine the toll it took on them too. Right. To be there every single day. Yeah. Like, we know if any of them have and stuff. Yeah. Like, have what any of them have spoken of careers? Like, yeah. Um, I think some of them have, they haven't really said much. Other than mm-hmm. kind of what I'll get into a little bit later, I think a lot of them, it was probably pretty traumatic. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. hearing all of that and seeing all the the pictures and things like that. And I think even those excursions that I was talking about, I can imagine mm-hmm. those being traumatic too. Just kind of picturing in your own mind what these women went through. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that it would be pretty difficult to talk about even now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Initially, Bianchi wasn't super cooperative, kind of didn't really want to testify. And the judge was like, "Eh, no, (laughs) that's like a literal term of your plea agreement. So Mm -hmm. if you're not going to testify, you're not going to cooperate. We're just going to have you go to Washington and serve your time there, which is something he really didn't want. And I think it's because it was a little bit more harsh penalty-wise here at the time. He ends up testifying because he doesn't want to go to prison in Washington. So despite you know him being on the, the stand for six months, all of the inconsistencies that he had, all of that, the jury ends up finding Bruno guilty of nine out of the 10 murders. And I didn't find a lot of information about this, but the only murder he wasn't convicted of was the murder of Yolanda Washington, which is the first victim that you talked about. And I couldn't find really any information why they didn't think he was guilty of that one. But I think that that's one that Bianchi was charged and pled to. So she did get justice in that sense. But I thought it was interesting that that was the only one that they didn't find him guilty of. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. find any information why. That's weird. That's bizarre. It must have been. He must have not have. Maybe he just watched it and didn't partake in it or something. Yeah, super weird. So they, the jury deliberated for about an hour in terms of the penalty portion. So they recommended life in prison without the possibility of parole for Bruno. And this is kind of the only thing that jurors have said since then is that they felt like a death sentence would have been too good for him. And that's Mm. why they gave him life without parole. So he ultimately gets sentenced to nine concurrent life terms without the possibility of parole. So it's a life sentence for each of the victims that he was convicted of murdering. Bianchi also received 
two consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole for Denise and Karen. And then he got five concurrent life terms for the California murders. Seven total, five concurrent, two consecutive. Yeah. Wow. So after Bruno's trial, the prosecutor made a formal determination that Bianchi didn't testify fully and truthfully against Bruno, which was a condition of his plea agreement. So in his original plea agreement, Bianchi was supposed to plead guilty to the two Washington murders, Denise and Karen, Mm -hmm. and then five of the Hillside cases. And then he would also testify truthfully against Bruno. Once he gave his testimony at Bruno's trial, he would then stay in California to serve his five concurrent life sentences. And if he lived out the life sentence, obviously insanely unlikely, he'd then be sent to Washington state to serve his time. Well, a trial was held and the judge agreed with the prosecution about Bianchi not testifying truthfully. And he ordered Bianchi back to Washington state to serve his time in Walla Walla state prison. And so if he serves his two consecutive life terms, he would then be sent back to California to serve his sentence for those murders. Again, super unlikely two consecutive life terms is a long ass time. So I have a question. Yeah. A life term technically, because we all assume a life term is basically you're in prison until you die. You're in prison for your life time. That's what it is. Right. 25. Isn't it like 25 years or something? Yeah. So in this case, when the laws were in effect at that time, it was a true life sentence. Mm. There would be no sort of minimum for him. It's just life. So yeah, he's not surviving for two lifetimes. No, (laughs) no, no. And Bruno didn't even survive for one. I didn't put a lot of detail in this because he's a piece of shit, but he died in prison in California in 2002. Wow. That's, that's, I feel like that's really recent, but it's not. But in my mind, 2002 is really recent. (laughs) That's 20 years ago. Come on. But I mean, if he was sentenced, you know, in 83, that's still a long, a long time for him to live before he. Wait, 2002, 22, 22. Okay. So that is 20 years ago. I was thinking it was 30 for some reason. I was like, don't, don't do that to me. (laughs) (laughs) And then Bianchi is still at the Walla Walla State Prison in Washington. Really? Really? Yes. I'm always surprised surprised to find out that these people are still alive. Yeah, always. (laughs) He is chilling with Gary Ridgway, and I think Robert Lee Yates is there. Could Um, you imagine working at that prison saying that these are the guys that are there? Yeah. I could not imagine. I could. Holy fuck. (laughs) I can't, like, these people are still alive. Yeah, and I think... Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that Walla Walla is like the biggest and the most, I mean, it's definitely the most well-known, but I think it's more of a a lifer kind of place that people go. Yeah. And a lot of people don't want to go there for Mm -hmm. good reason. I wonder if there's any documentaries on it. I'm sure there is. Cause like I said, there's gotta be, he's just one of many serial killers that are in there. I mean, I think almost every Washington case that I've covered, even not serial killer wise, they all end up at Walla Walla. I wonder if you get sentenced there, they're like, oh, when you get in, you're like, oh, listen, we have one of the Hillside Stranglers are here. It's like a celebrity type thing. Like this dude's here. Like, dude, this dude, they're crazy. Don't go by him. But like, they're here with you. Like, it's Mm -hmm. a weird, like 
criminal celebrity situation. Right. Yeah. I, think, I don't want to say it's cool, but it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. No, it totally is. I think it's interesting too, because they have such their own code of ethics in prison that mm-hmm. I think they often, these killers have to be kind of separate from everybody because crimes against women and crimes against children are really frowned upon when you're in prison mm-hmm. as they should be. So for their safety, they're kept kind of away from everybody, which I think is yeah. interesting, but obviously people can still get to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're still alive and kicking cost of the taxpayers money. Gosh, that's bizarre. That's so bizarre to me. I didn't realize until you were kind of talking about it. It does make sense that Bianchi's still alive because he was so much younger than yeah. Bruno. He was uh, born in the fifties. You know, he was born in 51. I think it was. So, so he's yeah, in so his sixties right now. Or 70s right? now? So, yeah, or almost 70s. Early, early 70s. Yep. Yeah, early, yep. early 70s. Yep. Yeah. So any day now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wonder if he'll die of like natural causes or if someone will kill him. We'll see. Um, I, I did read, I, I couldn't remember when, but I did read that he got married while he was in prison. But my Who favorite thing, that? right? But, but my favorite thing. thing that I don't think I've seen anywhere else is that he so he gets married to this woman and i'm assuming it's because he wants to get laid but the judge Mm -hmm. has denied him conjugal visits like (laughs) forever because of the crimes he committed so i'm kind of like what what was the point then (laughs) right yeah to have somebody to keep money on your books (laughs) yeah i guess because you're not getting anything else right Unless yeah, exactly. you're using the cum glove again. I don't know. <laughs> God, that's weird. Yeah, like you want the cum glove? I'll give you the cum glove, babe. <laughs> the old cum glove. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> Yuck. Yuck. Yeah, that's, that's all the, I the, have. The six, the six months is going to stick with me because that is bizarre. And I just, how exhausting on literally every single person dealing with all of that. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, you get pay- paid really shitty when you're on a jury too. So mm-hmm. you, that was their income for two years. Yay. And like, I, I don't know this for sure. Cause I wasn't alive back then, but I'm sure that, you know, like the leave options weren't like what they are today, you know, right. in terms of oh, your yeah. job and stuff. And right. I mean, if you're working yeah. at like McDonald's or like a gas station or, you know, mm-hmm. why why are they going to keep their job for you? Like when they can hire somebody, you know, to do it in the meantime. Exactly. So I'm sure a lot and of your kids. People, yeah. If you have your kids, kids, if you're a if single, you're a single parent, parent. Yeah. I would say that would be a, that would be for me as a single parent, I would be like, yeah, I can't do this. Like I'm not, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I support the death penalty and I hate cops and I host your grand podcast. And this is all things I think, please don't accept me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I would just I, say anything to get out of it, really. <laughs> so I just moved to Washington a couple of years ago and I like officially changed all my address over and everything. And like almost right after that happened, I got a jury summons. Wow. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> you guys must be hurting for jurors because I literally yeah. just told you I live here now, but I'm sure that I won't get picked for anything. And that's fine. <laughs> I yeah, would love yeah. to be on a jury, but I 
don't have the right kind of vibe that a prosecutor wants. So I'll always get kicked off. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel about myself as well. Mm -hmm. Like pretty much anyone who does what we do. Right. Like, oh, she's a lawyer. She has like a pro, not a pro defense, but like I have a very like defense leaning vibe. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't care for cops. I have a family member who was incarcerated. Like I just check all the boxes for the defense, but the prosecution's always going to boot me. Yeah. Yeah, You are a red flag to them. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for inviting us to do this collab. It was so fun. And I feel like I learned so, so much from you in such a small time. Like usually when we do these cases, we'll do the trial, but we don't go super in depth just because Mm -hmm. it's a little, like we can talk about murder, but talking about like the logistics of a trial, we usually don't go super in depth because in depth, because we don't want to like fuck anything up quite honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really interesting to hear actually from a knowledgeable source of how it goes down. Yeah. So thank you for inviting us to do this. Yeah, of course. And I definitely, I'm glad that I chose this one because like I said, I didn't know as much as I maybe thought I knew. And Mm -hmm. I certainly did not know all that information about the trial and how long it took and all of that. So I did know about the cum glove. I was real sad (laughs) that we got to talk about it, but it was part of the case. Key takeaway, cum glove. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I hate it, but I love it. So funny. Yeah. So gross. Every, every case we do has like one of those one gross things that you're like, God, God. Yeah. It's always like so interesting to me, the people that are like fascinated and I don't even want to say fascinated that are like, like you were talking about just in love with like serial killer men, but she's like next level, even Mm -hmm, above that. And I'm like, how, who hurt you that you're this way now? Right. Yeah. We talked about it in the Richard Ramirez episode where it's a lot of times it's the women want the bad boy without being in danger of the bad boy. Mm -hmm. And like, honey, no, you're still in danger because you're being manipulated and you just don't understand it yet. You in danger, girl. (laughs) Yes. Stop. Cut her off. Like, right. But also, like, in his case, I will never understand the women that are attracted to him. Like, are you kidding me? I don't think any of them are attractive. But he's, like, not attractive even if you take out the serial killer part. Like, no, he would need to (laughs) take a shower, gain about 50 pounds, learn how to brush his teeth, and then we can talk. Yeah. Like, Like, I I, I get, you know... When you see, say, a house has good bones, you're like, oh, it's good bones, but really, we need to fix that shit up. That's how I feel about Richard Ramirez. Like, <laughs> we really need to do some serious self work. And then maybe, yeah. like, no. like, no. <laughs> just throw the whole man away. Yes. <laughs> it's take to, we can take do that too. <laughs> yep. It's just, he's like one of those people that you can look at a picture of him and I feel like I can like smell him when I look at the picture and I'm just like, that's Mm -hmm. so disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like your photo of you should not evoke like such feelings in me that I like gag in my mouth and I can't even actually smell you because it's a photo, but I feel like I can. You shouldn't look like you smell. (laughs) Right. He looks like he has, like, you ever look at someone, you're like, God, I just want to take 
exfoliator and scrub all the dry skin and shit off your face. Like you really need like, that's exactly how I feel about him. (laughs) Do you guys have any parting thoughts? I don't know if I feel bad for Bianchi or what I feel. I feel bad that he was nurture more so than nature. And I feel like he wouldn't have been doing any of this stuff or at least to the capacity that he did. If he didn't go live with his cousin for sure. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, I always, I don't want to feel bad for a serial killer, but like we're human for the most part humans have empathy. I have empathy for him because I just, I don't think he would have ended up that way if that didn't happen. And his childhood was was shitty. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my parting thought. Yeah. I tend to agree with that. Pretty much. Yes. Agree. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't really have anything to add to that. You said everything, but yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. I think like you said, he, he was just like ripe for sort of molding very impressionable like you talked about yeah and just kind of the perfect accomplice for Bruno you know he was Mm -hmm. I think he talked about at one point in the trial that Bruno was the kind of person that would just order other people around and so he was very much the boss and very much the dominant one when you're 17 years younger you're like oh my cousin you know Mm -hmm. he's teaching me he's yeah like I have to listen to what he says and right of course, you're not going to, I mean, you should push back. But in his yeah. case, I think there was probably almost some of that like familial acceptance too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To where it's like we're bonding, like we're having a good time together. I put that in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're doing things together. Right. Like my family, things. Yeah. my family wouldn't lead me astray, mm-hmm. like kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the perfect storm, really. Mm-hmm. For real, oh, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. absolutely perfect partner for Bruno because he just was essentially the way I took it was like a yes man. You know, like mm-hmm. he's just gonna do what you tell him to do. Yeah. Well, what a you. what a wild case. Oh my god, for real. It just it's crazy how like you were talking about how many serial killers were active at this time though in California yeah. in Wash like everywhere mm-hmm. the Just 70s man insane late 70s early 80s <laughs> yeah yeah well thank you again and stranglers we will chit chat with you next thursday for our final few episodes and check out her podcast as well and we're going to link everything in our um when we do the whole social media thing we'll link all of your links in that as well cool and i will do the same for you guys all right awesome. perfect. well thanks for inviting us and we will chit chat with all of you next thursday Bye, everyone.